Hi everyone, Tom here. I'm just saying hello at the top of the episode as there are a lot of new listeners who have found this podcast in the last few weeks and I just wanted to say welcome. We're glad you're here. Come on in, look around, make yourselves at home in a sort of social distancing kind of way. We have a great episode for you this week, but we also have a deep back catalogue now of more than 50 episodes covering all issues associated with how we can be the generation that deals with the climate crisis and gets the world back on track for a better future. We are always solutions focused, but we're not naive about the challenge ahead of us. We're delighted you found us and hope you will come with us on this journey. Please do reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and have a discussion. Clay will read out all the details of how we can be reached at the end of this episode. So without more ado, here we go. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss the new documentary, Planet of the Humans, and we speak with longtime activist Jane Fonda. Thanks for being here. So guys, here we are again. Another week, another week of lockdown. We're all in our respective places. Um, actually, no, that's not true. Christiana, you've moved somewhere, haven't you? Yeah, we're still in the southern tip of Costa Rica, but we've moved from one part of the peninsula to another. Wow, that counts as a dramatic um, move in today's world. It is. Well, it is a dramatic move, particularly considering that you have to drive through, through, not over, through five rivers to get here. And uh, we're in the mini rainy season. So it's all quite um, exciting. You can only really uh, drive when there are at least 24 hours, if not more, of uh, no rain, which is highly unusual right now. So it's all very exciting. So you have to wait for 24 hours of rain before you can escape from where you are. Not escape. I'm sure it's lovely. No, 24 hours of sun, so, yes, yes, 24 of course, hours yeah. of no rain. Wow. Okay. Amazing. Unless unless you want to use a boat when you would, if you want to go the whole way by boat, you probably have to wait for 48 hours of rain. So you've got a choice there. You know, you just car, car in the sun, boat in the well, rain. Well, actually, that is the usual way of getting here is by boat. So you're right. Yeah. Across the ocean. And Mr. Dickinson, all well? Yeah, everything's fine. London's sort of uh, beginning to unlock itself. Um, we are no longer staying home. Cafes are starting to open. It's It's rather exciting, I must tell you. How very nice. And how is country idyll, Tom? <laughs> well, I mean, the spring continues to be delightful. There continue to be children around all the time. So I sort of do what I can in 20 minute increments. But, you know, compared to what's going on in the world, life's pretty good. It won't be long before they burst in and <laughs> Zoom bomb you as, the, as happening all over the world. So you better start with the episode. Right. So this week, we're going to have a different kind of discussion to our normal approach of considering an issue or a news item. And we're actually going to talk about a film. A few weeks ago, Michael Moore, the well-known documentary maker, released a film that he had been executive producer on called Planet of the Humans. Now, it was released on YouTube, and at the time of recording this podcast, it had been watched over 7.5 million times. And even though we understand that not all of you, our listeners, may have seen this film, we felt it was important to cover it in this podcast as it directly addresses and attacks many of the issues that we've talked about here for the last year. 
It makes claims about renewable energy being ineffective and not worth bothering with. It attacks many prominent environmentalists, including uh, multiple former guests on this podcast, as misguided or corrupt. But we wanted to take an open-minded look at it because it's always valuable to challenge your beliefs and ask ourselves whether there are items in here that can help or if it simply is a self-serving attempt to grab downloads and attention, even at the cost of damaging the movement that is trying to address the climate crisis. So that's where we're going this week and why. Now, Christiana is already looking like she's building up a bit of a head of steam just with me providing this light introduction. So why don't I encourage Christiana to provide some opening comments? Yes. Well, um, how many deep breaths should I take before doing that? (laughs) Just do it. I, Dive I, in. A couple. My plan is to try and convert how you're feeling into energy that could power the whole world for a year, but you go straight ahead, Christiana. Okay, great. That's that's a good idea. Why don't we start with what you liked about the film? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I actually I can I can force myself into that. What I think was very interesting is that Michael Moore with the standing that he has in people's opinion um, would actually engage with this topic. Sadly, he takes the wrong side in the argument. I, I would like to start by making two comments, my friends. The first, on the credibility, I get the feeling that someone somewhere found reams and reams and reams of outdated um, clips and footage that has been molding in somebody's closet for 10, 20, 30 years. And all of a sudden, you know, since we're all in lockdown, somebody opened the closet and said, oh my God, what are we going to do with all this footage? Oh, let's just paste it together into a movie. Because the fact is that at least 90% or 95 or 100%, I don't know, but most of the footage that is there is old footage the arguments that are being made, the numbers that are being put forward were a fact 10 or 20 years ago, but they are no longer a fact. And so to present it as though this were current reality is nothing less than misinformation. It's a little bit like the equivalent of making a little movie about the first cell phone that was produced 45 years ago, um, weighed 2.5 pounds, was called The Brick because it was so large. You could only use it to speak. Um, There were no other other, um, uses for it. Um, It took 10 hours to charge, and you could only use it to talk for 35 minutes. And so to put out, quote-unquote, documentary footage about that cell phone, pretending that that is the cell phone technology that we have today and then criticize cell phone technology for being slow to charge and it's only one use that we can have because we can only talk about it. I mean, it's it's very much similar to that. The problem is that the misinformation that is here provided is taking undue advantage of the fact that most people don't spend their time doing research into where renewable energies are today as opposed to where they were 10 or 20 years ago. And most people don't know that the predominant view on biomass has completely changed over the past 10 years. And so to bring all of that mothballed footage out and put it forward as though it were 
representing reality, I think it just totally pulls the rug from credibility of Michael Moore, sadly. So that's my first point. And my second point, I really wonder, what is the purpose of this? What, who is gaining from this movie? What interests are being pursued here? And my only conclusion is, is this to the gain of the fossil fuel industry? And if so, if so, does this actually mean that Michael Moore is doing the job of the fossil fuel lobby industry? I mean, that would be very sad. And that would be not consistent with the political position that he has had in the past on most of his other movies. And and just on that, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think you are, that he is sort of in the pay of the fossil fuel industry. But what he does seem to be doing, it's very Trumpian, right? He sort of doesn't care what his topic is. He just wants people talking about him and wants that notoriety and that, you know, that clickbait sort of stuff. And to that end, they seem prepared to be, to distribute falsehoods, to destroy movements, to destroy momentum. Paul, what were your impressions? So, so he, here's the thing. Um, I think we need to recognize that Michael Moore has played a little bit of a game with this film. Uh, and what I mean by that, I think what's extremely strange to me is that it seems like Michael Moore is um, doing things in, a, in, a, in an unusual way. Like he doesn't appear in the film once. You never see his face, but it says executive producer Michael Moore. And I would be very interested to see if Michael Moore will begin to distance himself from the film. I think that that's a possibility. Perhaps he'll want to do that. Um, I think the reputation of Michael Moore is on the line here, frankly, uh, because this film is incredibly dangerous. In my view, it is one of the most uh, difficult uh, and dangerous pieces of media I've come across really since Bjorn Lomberg's book. Um, and I think it, it's, it drives an ironic contempt and indeed a sarcastic hatred, I would say, of failings in, uh, in, in the efforts to build renewable energy. And um, one thing I would say is particularly shocking. There's, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not from a religious background, but there is a famous phrase that the devil mixes lies and the truth to confuse us. And it is actually definitely true uh, that um, a rising human population is at the very heart of the problems of climate change. And uh, you'll find Al Gore way back when he made his movie, um, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, he used that, uh, that uh, statistic, as do many distinguished scientists. They put human population at the heart of the problem. But it is absurd to say that because human population is rising, renewable energy is a bad idea. And that is the critical classic problem of this film or, or at the heart of this film, which I believe is yeah. a very, very dangerous film. Yeah, I agree. So, I, I mean, I, I agree with what both of you said. Just to take it another level, um, from a statistical and data point of view, it's sort of like a kind of bad college paper. You know, it's kind of like he's sort of come up with a thesis. The data hasn't quite supported it. And he's just rammed it home with more aggression um, because actually he's pulling together incredibly deceptive bits of footage, attempting to equate things that don't quite fit together, talking to people who aren't genuine leaders in their field, taking snippets of information to construct a narrative that doesn't appear to have actually been on there underneath. So from a data perspective and an integrity perspective, it feels... Um, very flawed and actually like a work of deception, really, to me. 
So, so that's one piece, and that is playing directly into the hands of those who would like to slow this movement down. Um, I think the other place where I think it's really dangerous is those of us who work in climate change know that, and this is, I'm, acceler- I'm accentuating this for, to make a point, but there are sort of two broad camps of approaches to this issue, right? One is, say, call it the activist approach, where people will say, we need to call for exactly what we want and everything we want and anything less than that. If people don't deliver it, then they're part of the problem. And then there's the other camp where people say, we need to be practical. We need to take first steps. We need to do what's possible. We need to build momentum. And a big part of our challenge has been, how do we get those two to work together so that they both have a role? The activists wake people up and get people moving in the right direction. And then and then others come in and say, well, here's some steps you can take. Here's how you can move further forward. And those two working together without sort of applying purity tests to each other is a big part of our challenge, right? And it's a big part of everybody collaborating. And it's part of what we all do. What he's done is he's sort of intuitively or deliberately identified, though, and just driven a truck between them and tried to say these two are actually um, completely opposite views of the world. And what's more, he's kind of hints hints at kind of, you know, dark forces and dark motivations behind them. You know, who's really paying Bill McKibben and these sorts of things. I mean, Bill McKibben Mm. is like one of the nicest, gentlest, most motivated by the outcome people that I've ever had the privilege to know to some small degree. Um, He's a professor at a Middlebury college. He is not sitting on enormous amounts of money. I have no doubt that he is in this for the right reasons. So it just feels so self-serving that he is prepared to create that level of schism and breakdown, potentially in the climate movement. Hopefully that won't happen in order to just get a few clicks on YouTube. Well, that's exactly my point, right? Um, So, you know, this divide and conquer attitude or approach, um, I really wonder why is it there? What what is what is the ultimate motive of putting this movie out? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree entirely. It's and and I think that that's that's really the focus because you were quite right, Christiana, to 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 begin your comments by highlighting the achievements of Michael Moore in terms of achieving political change. You know, I, I think if anybody else, if 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 this Jeff Gibbs had produced this movie without the name Michael Moore attached to it, I don't think anyone would be paying any attention to it because it doesn't warrant that attention. You know, Greta said our house is on fire. I believe the house is on fire. A renewable energy gives an opportunity to put that fire out. And what this documentary seems to say is, no, no, we're going to just let the house burn let it happen. There's nothing we can do. And that's what makes me so angry. It is so disempowering. This, frankly, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on outrage and optimism, but this bullshit is unacceptable. Tell us what you really think, Paul. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, sorry, but um, do we really have to spend so much valuable airtime on this movie that is not uh worthy of our airtime. That's a very good point. May I conclude, Christiana, with a little bit of Churchill. Uh, Let them do that. Let them do their... (laughs) As he always does. uh, Let them do their worst and we will do our best. And Clay, if I've said that nine times before, you can delete it. (laughs) No, you're good. I'll keep it. So, you know, I mean, all of us are clearly incensed by this outrageous film. Um, But I think that it might be interesting to try and just have a quick conversation with somebody who knows more than us and can speak to some of the inconsistencies and some of the um, misleading claims that are made in this film. And I was wondering about, there's someone called Jonathan Kumi, who is from uh, Stanford University. Uh, he's a lecturer in earth system science in the School of Earth, Energy and Environmental Sciences. Um, and he 
he is one of the world experts on this issue, unlike many of the people featured in the film. Should, <laughs> we, ju- should we just try and give him a call? Let's do it. Okay, give me one moment. I'm going to dial him in here. Okay, one second. Hello? Hello. Hi, Jonathan. This is Clay from Outrage and Optimism. Um, can, you, can you hear me? Yes, very clearly. Great. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on such short notice. My pleasure. All right. So we've All got right, some... So how, how should we proceed? Yeah. So <clears throat> I've got Christiana, Tom, and Paul on the line here. We've got some questions for you about Planet of the Humans. So um, I'm going to hand it over to Christiana, and we're just going to get started. Christiana? Um, Jonathan, thank you for taking our call. Um, This may come as a little surprise to you, but we have been discussing the um, film that we're not calling a documentary, the latest film put out by um, Michael Moore and some friends of his. And um, we, we were getting into a pretty heated discussion. So at some point we decided we better call someone who does have a whopping 30 years of experience in renewable energy, who truly is an expert in this, and, um, and, and get uh, what we hope is a more objective reaction because we found ourselves getting quite worked up about the film. So thank you for taking our call. And I would just love to hear your opinion, Jonathan, about the credibility of the arguments that are made in the film. So this film is rife with logical fallacies. And by that, I mean that there are statements in the film that are internally inconsistent. There are statements in the film that are inconsistent with the facts related to the environmental impacts of renewable energy. Uh, I'm going to talk about three logical fallacies that I noticed. Uh, The first is something that came up in the beginning of the film where I think it's the the filmmaker Gibbs, Jeff Gibbs. He talked about how he's an environmentalist and he recounted the story of uh, putting sand in the gas tank of a developer's uh, bulldozer because the bulldozer was wrecking a a field or a, a forest that he liked to play in. Now, this is an interesting story, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the credibility of the people making this film on renewable energy. It's, it's a way to kind of use emotions to make you think that he's a credible source when, in fact, he is not. So that, that's a logical fallacy of some sort. I don't know whether it has a name, but uh, it's rhetoric. Oh, Jonathan, so hold on. So you don't think you don't think that putting sand is enough of a qualification to make an almost two-hour movie about <laughs> renewable energy? <laughs> yeah, well, perhaps he, he thought he had other qualifications. But in any case, I you know, whether that even qualifies one as an environmentalist is an open question. Indeed. I, I care about the environment and have never put sand in anyone's gas tank. So, uh, anyway, so that's the first, uh, logical fallacy. So the second one that I noticed is what's known as cherry picking. And by cherry picking, this is when people pick and choose data to support the argument that they're making in a way that's extremely favorable to their argument. 
And in this case, it's a particularly insidious form of cherry picking because what they do is they look at renewable energy from 10, 15 years ago, and they look at what they claim are correct uh, analyses of those impacts 10 or 15 years ago. And let's just posit that those are correct, although I'm sure there are some details to be investigated. Uh, but 10 or 15 years ago is a lifetime when it comes to renewable energy. The cost of solar panels is down 90% in the last 10 years. The cost of wind is down by a third. The cost of lithium ion batteries is down by 80%. So in the cost of these, of these renewable technologies is all the materials and all the energy and all the effort that goes into making them. So if you've cut the cost by 90%, you have to have caught, cut the environmental impacts mm. as well. So that, that's the second point. And, and I'm assuming that not only has the cost go down, but the quality has gone up, the efficiency has gone up, and above all, the lifetime has gone up. So that same panel is actually going to produce renewable energy for a much longer period of time uh, as compared to where we were 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, so this is another example of cherry picking. In the film, they talk about a very old installation that I think had an efficiency of 8%. And current panels are now at 20 to 25%, and they do, as you say, last much longer than they used to. And, mm. and so, again, cherry-picking to make their argument using very old data is, is really bad form and not, not comme il faut, as they say in French. So, uh, so that's the second point. Lots of cherry-picking in this film. The last point is what I would call the compared-to-what fallacy. And so mm -hmm. all energy sources have environmental impacts. Uh, so you, ha you have to, uh, you know, pour cement and you have to mine for materials and you, you operate them and they have some impacts. Uh, and if you look at the environmental impacts of renewable energy, but ignore the environmental impacts of the energy sources that the renewables displace, then you're really not giving a true picture. And so uh, there are studies, life cycle assessment studies of environmental impacts of renewables, and they all show that uh, renewables have much, much lower impacts than fossil fuels. So much lower yeah. emissions, even after you account for the embedded emissions of building those plants. So the cement and the steel and the, and the mining for various things. So, so if you're not comparing to what you're displacing, then I think you're creating a false picture of the situation. And we know that renewables have much, much lower uh, life cycle emissions and uh, nowadays increasingly much lower costs than fossil fuels. So um, three, three very good points that really uh, place the credibility of the film uh, seriously into question. Um, one, one last um, insight that we would love to have from you, Jonathan, is what do you think uh, was the motivation, the goal, the objective of um, putting this film out with such outdated material and arguments that have little credibility? What, 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 what is the point? Who's being benefited here? And, and whose who's interests are being advanced? I can't speak to what's in their hearts or in their minds. I don't know their motivations. Uh, but when the history of this era is written, I think one of the big societal problems we're going to see 
uh, is that the individual interests of people is separated or, or divergent from the interests of society. We see this with pollution, of course, mm. because the costs of pollution are not borne by the people burning the fuel. But we also see for someone like Michael Moore, you know, he makes money by getting attention and having a sort of contrarian film that talks about uh, the filmmaker being environmentalist and yet bashing renewable energy is something that is very convenient to moneyed interests. It's very convenient to the fossil fuel industry. And so what it does is it allows uh, Michael Moore to use this contrarian view to get more attention. And ultimately, I think that's, you know, I don't think he necessarily cares so much about environmental issues. I think he cares about getting attention and having his film widely viewed and, and being supported by people with money. And it happens to conveniently align with the interests of the fossil fuel industry, who, of course, have a lot of money. Here's a really, okay. here's a really tricky question, probably impossible to answer, but I'd love to get your opinion. Um, you know, Michael Moore doesn't really actually personally appear in the film. Do you think he's nervous of being associated with it? Or do you have any idea? I mean, how dangerous is this film? You know, in, in five or 10 years, are we going to say this film was, was, you know, should never have been made? Or, you know, is there going to be an investigation? Or, I mean, you know, is it dangerous to mislead the public? How serious is this? You mean, is it dangerous to Michael Moore? I guess. How dangerous is it to society? And I guess, how dangerous is it to Michael Moore? Well, are there consequences for people lying in the current society? Unfortunately, in the United States, not enough consequences, in my view, for people lying. Uh, I don't know whether any consequences will come to bear uh, to Michael Moore because of making such a terrible film. Uh, I guess based on the last few years of U.S. history, I kind of doubt it. Uh, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, people's credibility is all they have. Mm. And it's it's not a renewal. Credibility is not a renewable resource. If once you've blown it, <laughs> once you've blown it, Indeed. it's very hard to get it back. Very hard. And so that's why as a, as a scientist, that's something that I've always been very careful about to make sure that I don't exaggerate. I have uh, opinions about things and I'm very, very clear. You know, my old friend, Steven Schneider used to say, don't exaggerate, the truth is bad enough. And <laughs> it's very important <laughs> for scientists to be, to be careful in how they say things. Now, of course, Michael Moore is not a scientist, but for anyone putting information out about an important public policy issue, credibility is the coin of the realm. If you really want to be taken seriously and to continue to work in a field. So it's very, very important to maintain that. And whether he sees it that way, I don't know, because I don't, uh, you know, he's not a scientist and he doesn't seem to care whether the things in the movie make any sense. Uh, but I, you know, obviously I can't speak to what's in his heart and his mind, but. No, neither can we. I wish that he hadn't made this movie. Yeah, no. I, or maybe I wish he, he had made a different movie. Maybe he will. Let's hope so. Well, maybe may, maybe he will change his mind and make a different movie to make up for it. But Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you mm. for um, for just picking up our call and uh, sharing uh, these important insights with us. I, I summarize this quick call as um, Michael Moore's latest film, A Tragedy of Credibility. That should have been the subtitle. Um, <laughs> thank you very, very, very much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. 
Um, and we will go on actually to a very exciting interview that we have for this podcast, which is an interview with Jane Fonda. Sounds fun. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan, Thank you, so Jonathan. much. Great to Bye. talk to you. My pleasure. Take care. Nice Bye to meet you now. all. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Well, that was a lovely conversation with someone who clearly knows exactly what they're talking about, which is just what we need in all this crazy confusion of the film. What did you make of that? Well, um, yeah, as I said there at the end, how refreshing to have just a very, very clear analysis of where credibility is and credibility is not. Um, And, you know, um, Tom and Paul, I think it's quite fascinating that as, as life would have it, This episode uh, actually takes us from a conversation about a very irresponsible film that trades on controversy um, rather than on responsible engagement with any mission or any technology. And in the second half of this episode, we totally contrast the program because we have a conversation with Jane Fonda, decade-long activist who is a responsible activist who herself has made many films to present the causes that she believes in. Um, And it's just two completely different uses of a movie screen and of the influence that any film can have on public opinion. And I think that's the whole theme of this episode, uh, really, which is the power and the significance of of film and how it can be really very, very constructive and positive or how it can be really quite negative and dangerous. Fascinating. And Christiana, uh, why don't we now uh, provide a proper explanation for people who don't know of our amazing guest? Sure. Now, most people would know who Jane Fonda is, but for those for whom uh, Jane is just a name without uh, much information behind that, uh, Jane tells us in the interview that she's uh, going into her 83rd year of life. Uh, Quite amazing. She is an actress. She has been a political activist all of her life. Uh, She has received just countless awards for her acting. She has two Academy Awards, two BAFTA Awards, seven Golden Globe Awards, a Primetime Emmy Award, an AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, just the full um, the full collection. Um, and uh, in, since I'm now trying to make an effort to know who was born to who, um, she was born <laughs> Since the to Paul actor, McCartney episode, I remember since that. Since the yeah. Paul McCartney Stella episode. Stella McCartney, oh. Yeah. She's the daughter of actor Henry Fonda, um, which is why she, you know, started in her acting career very early um, in in life. She has been married uh, several times to fascinating uh, people. And one of these was the activist, one of the main activists against uh, the war in Vietnam. And a very um, a, a very interesting little data point on Jane Fonda, because many women will know that Jane Fonda was probably the first person who ever put out videos on workouts, right? Uh, and uh, she 
um, was always very conscious of her physical fitness and she made videos that were just incredible hits, but she didn't do it for the money. She didn't do it um, because only she wanted to continue to being as fit as she still is today. She did it because she needed to raise funds for the political activism against the war of Vietnam. And that is, you know, a little data point that gives you a taste of how this extraordinary woman has managed to weave together her convictions about the causes that she feels so deeply um, about all of her activism uh, with her acting and her public life. So um, quite, quite, quite a fantastic woman, and we are incredibly honored to have a moving conversation with her. Wonderful. Yeah. And I have to say just, I mean, I had no idea how cool this woman is. I mean, I've known who she is all my life, right? Because when I grew up and I remember the VHS tapes, but until I actually had the opportunity of seeing the Fire Drill Fridays and then researching her, just amazing. This is a great conversation. Indeed. Looking forward to it very much. Let's play it. Shane, thank you so much. What fun to have you on our podcast. What honor. Thank you very much for having me on your program just a few days ago. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was inspiring and it was fun. And so I'm hoping for the same effect for this conversation. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You and, and your colleagues and your co-author, Tom. I so enjoyed your book and your presence on my Fire Drill Friday, and it's an honor to be with you all today. Oh, thank, thank you, Jane. Jane. Very sweet of you. Jane, um, I, I've been very curious about um, how you managed to be such an effective activist uh, since the 70s on so many issues, including um, anti-Vietnam War, civil rights, women's rights and equality, just to name a few, and now climate change, of course. So how do you manage to be such an effective activist and such a brilliant actress at the same time? There's got to be a place inside of you, Jane, that actually manages to weave these two things harmoniously and beautifully together. Because most people would think that those are two exclusive, mutually exclusive activities or passions, but you just bring them together so beautifully. How, how does that happen? Well, when I first became an activist because of the Vietnam War in 1970, which was actually late, but I, I'm I'm a I'm a late bloomer, which is okay as long as you don't miss the flower show, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the movies that I was doing then, um, they were frustrating for me. They didn't speak to this burgeoning new awareness I had about how the world is working. Because, you know, once you learn about an issue, like say in my case, the Vietnam War, you begin to discover imperialism, you discover racism, you discover uh, misogyny, all a lot of other things come into your, um, your, your view. And I was very frustrated because when I would be on the ground someplace protesting with other people, sometimes they were indigenous fishermen, sometimes they were working class people on a strike, but whatever they were, there was a distance between myself and them because of my celebrity and I didn't like it. And I remember early in 1970, I said to a friend of mine who was a, 
a radical lawyer in Detroit, Ken Cockrell, I said, I think I'm going to leave the business. I'm going to quit being an actor. And and I want to be a full-time organizer. And he said, shut up. (laughs) Fonda, the movement has plenty of organizers. We don't have movie stars. You cannot stop acting. Mm. Not only that, you have to take it much more seriously. Well, since I admired him very much, I started thinking a lot about what he said. And I decided that I would start producing movies myself that were about things that that I thought were important, that had something to say. Mm -hmm. The first one was Coming Home, which I won an Academy Award for. And then I continued from there, China Syndrome, nine to five. Sometimes they were comedies, sometimes they were serious. But I didn't feel that I was betraying myself when Mm -hmm. I went to work. They were things that mattered to me. And and that has kind of continued um, ever since. And now I'm doing a wonderful TV series, well, when I come out of quarantine, called Grace and Frankie. And I didn't necessarily, I'm old now, and I needed to work, and I needed to earn a living. And I didn't realize right away that Grace and Frankie is actually making a difference in the world because it shows older women who've been through a real um, trauma surviving and thriving. So it's, it's meant a lot to women. And as a result, it, it's meant a lot to me that even mm. now in this kind of what looks like a silly comedy to feel that I'm actually still doing doing something good. Still inspiring good in people. Trying to anyway, yeah. <laughs> and um and and Jane, one of one of the fun things, if I may say so, I, and I I say fun with deep respect for 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 what you do. Um, but one of the things that um that that we think is fun because it is so unusual is um your preparation to be arrested and um and and how you know how someone of your stature and your presence uh is actually first of all how do you manage to be arrested with such grace and beauty um mostly that doesn't come together <laughs> um but also how do you prepare for that internally because you do want to get arrested because it's part of your very powerful message that you put out there how do you prepare for that how do you prefer, prepare for the experience of uh spending uh an, a night uh in a cell um what how how was that before you went into the cell during the night that you were there and then did that change your activism when you came out well i i had been arrested before um under very different circumstances it wasn't because of civil disobedience it was because President Richard Nixon knew, well, I was flying from Canada to the United States at the beginning of an anti-war national tour. I was arrested in the airport in Cleveland and they told me it was on orders from the White House. And so I was roughed up a little bit there and I was it was a very uncomfortable situation. I was put into a cell with a woman who was kicking heroin and I didn't really know what was gonna happen and the police were, um, the fact that I was white and famous didn't matter all that much to them. They were, they did not like me and they, they roughed me up a little. And what was the reason for that arrest? Um, they, I have vitamin pills and little plastic bags 
with BLD, breakfast, lunch, dinner, written in nail polish on each bag. They seized them and said that I was smuggling drugs. And about a month later, when they'd been tested in a laboratory, they revealed it didn't get headlines, but they revealed that they were vitamin pills. So that's the excuse. And they stole all my papers and my address books and, and everything like that. Um, and also when, when the officer began to shove me around, I shoved him back. So I, it was also um, assaulting an officer. But at any rate, so I, I, had, I had had an experience um, with police. Well, many experiences with police, but actually police who ended up putting me in jail and a night in jail. And it's very different when you are deliberately committing civil disobedience mm -hmm and willing to risk arrest. And I know that you have said in, in articles and in your book, the importance of, of, of that mm. um, in, in any movement. I mean, you can see Gandhi winning India's independence through civil disobedience, Martin Luther King and the, the young African-American students in the South in the 50s and 60s who would sit into lunch counters where they were where they were prohibited because they were black. Um, there have been so many examples of people willing to risk arrest in order to call attention to an issue that is wrong. Correct. What I found was as they they issue three warnings. I don't know if this is true everywhere, but in D.C. they've got a lot of experience with um, civil disobedience. They issue three warnings, and if you're still there at the third warning, they handcuff you with plastic handcuffs and put you in a police wagon and take you to a, a holding cell or a holding room. And there was such a feeling of empowerment. It was interesting. It was, there's so few opportunities in life to commit yourself, your whole body, to put it in alignment with your deepest values. Mm. And there's something that feels so right about that. Mm. And I, I felt it. And after four times being arrested in one night spent in jail, I had to not be arrested anymore. So I was one of the people that would greet people when they came out of the holding pen. And I was just amazed at how many people were transformed by the experience. Mm. Hmm. One of the people who participated was the wonderful actor, Sam Waterston. He is an intel intellectual. He is deeply moderate. And yet he said in a situation that like we're facing with the climate crisis, doing something like civil disobedience and risking arrest is the right thing to do because we are facing a radical situation. And so you need to do something like that, even when you're a moderate. And two weeks later, he did it again at, <laughs> at a football game. <laughs> he held up the handcuffs, look what you started. <laughs> and he said, it changed me. Mm. And uh, another actor, Ted Danson, he said, it made me think very differently about how I move forward in the world. Mm. And many other people um, said that to me. And people came from all over the country who had never done that before. And many of them came back a second time and in some cases, even a third time. I mean, look, we, for the most part, we were white people. And we, we also very, very, very wonderful movement lawyers, progressive lawyers over the years have sued the police in Washington to make it impossible for them to 
um, be violent against protesters. So we benefited from years of previous acts of violence on on behalf of the police in DC, especially against protesters who were of color. Um, so we were not roughed up and and we were treated relatively well. And actually the police came to kind of like us hmm. because we were we were nice to them and they to us. Um, but and so I just want to I just want to acknowledge the fact that I am privileged and it's not always that way. Hmm. But I, I'm going to do it again the minute we get out of <laughs> <laughs> Limit, limited opportunities for that at the moment. Yeah. Yes. Um, Jane, can I ask? You know, I mean, and you've you've indicated, I think, part of the answer to this question already. But you have been an activist for decades, right? I mean, from the Vietnam War through feminist issues, civil rights, you know, it's been a range of issues that you've really tried to do everything you can and use your position to kind of push on. There are not that many examples of people who have been activists for as long as you. And part of that is because it's exhausting and people can get really emotionally drained as they try to change the world over a long period of time. We now have a new generation of people who are really doing everything they can to step up when it's really needed. What would you say is the is the cause of you being at the front lines of this for so long? Because I think that's really quite key as people start to think about how they can be sustained in this work. I think back again in 1970, I was driving across the country. I was by myself heading to New York to begin filming a movie called Clute. And as I was crossing the Rocky Mountains, I had just moved back to the United States from living in France, and I had put a down payment on a very fancy home on the top of a hill where I knew I could have fundraisers for the various causes that I was working with. And as I was crossing the Rocky Mountains, I had an epiphany. I don't want to be one of those privileged, white, wealthy ladies living on the top of a mountain, Hmm. doling out money. I want to be at the bottom of the mountain with the people, standing with the people that I want to learn from and work with and make a difference with. And it was the best decision I ever made in my life. So I got out of my bubble as Hollywood movie star. And I began to spend time all over the United States with people who were not privileged, often not white, suffering, and yet incredibly brave and putting their lives on the line. And I also, because I was on the ground, I also met so many people who were profoundly changed through activism, through taking a stand when something that was important to them was in danger, whether it was the safety of their children because of a toxic dump that was put next to their home or whatever it was, they rose up and became brave people. So my my visceral experience with people who, who had profoundly changed is what keeps me from getting tired because I know And I, too, I wasn't always an activist. I was a hedonist. I mean, I didn't even know where Vietnam was. So, And I'm glad, I'm happy about that because I know what it means. I was an unhappy hedonist. And the minute I became an activist and began to commit myself, my whole body, to things that I believed in, my whole life changed. Mm. And 
I don't get depressed anymore. Hmm. Jane, um, you're such a great leader and an inspiration for so many millions of people. And I've got a very specific question about your, your activism on Vietnam. Um, I, was, I looked it up today that uh, in 1995, you know, Robert McNamara said, we were wrong, terribly wrong. We owe it to future generations to explain why. You are completely vindicated. You were completely right. And my question is, how can we help the world to see that you are again, with your climate activism, leading us away from disaster? Well, uh, what's important is that there are millions of people all over the world, and some of them are so young, and they're grieving for what has already been lost and for a future that they may never have. And yet there's the, the Green New Deal that gives them a vision of what the world can be, and they're so brave. Greta Thunberg. It's Greta Thunberg that got me off my ass and deciding <laughs> to move to, to move to D.C. Because, you know, I think I think of people like me, celebrities, as repeaters. Do you know what repeaters are? They're the towers that you see on the top of mountains that pick up signals from the valleys. The signals in the valleys aren't quite strong enough to get up over the mountain and reach a bigger audience. Celebrities can do that. We can be the repeaters. Not the leaders, I'm not a leader, but I'm a repeater that can help voices that aren't heard be heard by a wider audience. And I just had a feeling that if I moved to DC and did something that would get a lot of press attention. Mm. And, 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 and that's what we did. It's not like sitting at a lunch counter. It's not like we were putting our lives in danger. It's not like what Gandhi did. But if you do something as simple as standing on the steps of the Capitol, holding a protest sign and chanting, chanting, that is illegal. So I felt if I was 82 years old, if I can get arrested enough times, there's going to be a lot of press coverage. And a lot of people are going to say, well, my God, if she can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and it turned out to be right. It, it, it worked. But it was because of the students who were in the leadership, you know? Yeah. Well, but, but, but I was just kind of one more follow on, if I may, Jane. Maybe in, in your words, if you're not a leader of, of the movement, perhaps you're a leader of the celebrities. I've seen other celebrities and famous people follow your lead. You've spoken before about how artists, writers, poets, philosophers used to be in the vanguard of activism. I mean, what do you think is the, what advice do you have for famous people, for celebrities now in this crisis? Well, I think my message is what comes across with Fire Drill Fridays. What made me so happy when we moved them to California, when I had to come back to get ready to go to work on Grace and Frankie. And, um, you know, California is a very critical place because we are an oil producing state. Those damn oil rigs up and down right next to schools and churches and homes and people are dying of cancer. And it's the worst. It's as dangerous to the environment as the tar sands oil. And we've got to stop it. So I was very happy to be able to come back here. And the first one we had in front of City Hall in Los Angeles, there were all these people that nobody had ever heard from who are either dying of cancer themselves or who have family members that are dying of cancer because they have oil wells in their backyard. And all of these really big time celebrities, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, who won an Oscar a week later, they didn't make speeches. 
they introduced these frontline voices. <laughs> That's the message. And they got a lot of press coverage. And every time I spoke after that, when there were going to be celebrities listening to me, I talked about how important it is that we use our celebrities to lift up the voices of people who don't get heard. And that's kind of the message that I have for my fellow, my fellow celebrities. You know, we don't have to be the experts and make the big speeches. We have to give platform to, to, to those who are living through it. Hmm. Thank you. Jane, I loved your latest TikTok video. And it shows you getting out of bed, pouring yourself a coffee with your jail mugshot on it, doing the squats you did in jail, and then heading to work at 9am with what appears to be a cocktail. And then with the empty cocktail glass passed out on your computer at 5pm. And it kind of, you know, it, it made me think of many things. And one of them was the relationship between doing serious things and being serious. And actually, we tend to do serious things but the mistake we make is we tend to be serious the whole time while doing serious things. And actually, that makes doing serious things kind of intolerable and it makes it unpopular. And People see this stuff and it seems so weighty and so difficult to kind of get engaged with that. And what I loved about that video is you're clearly doing serious work, but you're having fun with it and you're really enjoying it. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between doing serious things and having fun. Well, first of all, you know, I've learned to be forgiving of myself. Yeah. There was no one as more serious and humorless <laughs> as I was when I started being an activist. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> it was it was pathetic. I could not take a joke. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember one of the first big major speeches I made. I walked up to the theater where I was gonna and the, the marquee said, Come here, Barbarella, speak. And instead of being able to laugh about it, I, you know, I got really angry. But when you are new to the business of social change, because you have discovered an issue or a number of interrelated issues that are really harming people or harming the earth, one thing always leads to, and you begin to discover there are all of these other interrelated issues like racism and misogyny mm. and 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 inequity and and all the problems with capitalism and you become infuriated you know it's almost more than the human psyche can handle yeah. to, to to absorb the horrors that people do to each other and to the planet and you get very very angry i'm now heading into 83 um i know that it's a long haul change is slow to take place. It's like an underground, you know, I always, whenever I say that, I think of Vietnam because everybody was so shocked when Saigon fell, <laughs> but it actually was the process that had been happening quietly under the surface. Change is going on right now, right as people are sitting at home realizing that we have an absolute toxic jerk running this country, who talks about ingest, injecting bleach <laughs> and who doesn't care about people and so forth. And that's gestating in people's minds and hearts. We're changing. I think that it's we're going to come out of this angrier and better and more determined than, than we were before. I'm quite hopeful about this. Hmm. But, um, you know, you, you as you get older and you've been at it for a while, you realize it doesn't happen 
all of a sudden it takes time and you have to stick with it and not and not you know not not get impatient when you're young and you're new at it you're impatient yeah but it it, it does it takes time and also i've seen people change so profoundly when trump got elected one of the first things that i that i said in speeches was learn to talk to people who voted for him who don't agree with you and listen carefully we hmm. have to understand why this happened yeah yeah what is it that made people want to vote for a man like this and learn to talk to people after you've listened carefully to them hmm. well i i thank you for 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 bringing that up because um that is one of the many beautiful attributes uh, that you have had for so many years the fact that you're so committed to listening you know in in buddhism we call it deep listening uh, and and you tell so many stories of situations in which you have sat in the back of a of the class or the meeting room or whatever, really truly truly listening, um, and it, it does give you a different quality of action once you go to the front. Once you have listened uh, profoundly, it does give a, a a different action. So thank you for 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 bringing that up. Um, and and Jane, as though as though you hadn't given the world enough. The most popular video ever, countless movies, countless books, on and on and on and on. And now you're giving us yet one more book. What is your new book about and when is it coming out? Because what launched me into Five Real Fridays was my question, what can I do? The book is called, What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action. And... It's about how I came to go to D.C. and what happened in D.C. Each week by week by week, we focus on each topic that we covered. And um, I love this book so much. Is it done? Is it finished? It is finished. It's coming out on. Yeah, I, I, we we started writing in December and it, I got finished a, a week ago. Fantastic. And I just, Congratulations. Yeah. We know how difficult that is. So yeah, it's fantastic. We <laughs> so we look we look forward to that. Very much look forward. It's it's very um, interesting, Jane, how many books on climate are coming out this year. And mm -hmm. the tone of most of them is an engaged tone, right? It is uh, what we call a stubborn, optimistic tone in, in the sense of we are empowered and we can make a difference. And here is how. Uh, and I think that's fantastic that it is that message is coming from so many different sources and in so many different um colors and hues and shapes and sizes. I think it, and I think we've actually changed, uh, turned a corner here on uh, what people feel that they can do on, on climate. Do Would you agree on that? I definitely do. Uh, we decided that the focus of Fire Drill Fridays were going to be on people who are concerned but don't know what to do, have never taken action before, and that's what we succeeded at. People who had mm. never done anything like that came to us. And, you know, as, as you have pointed out, and I just so love that you talk about this, we only need 3.5% of the population to be willing to engage in nonviolent action to win. It's mm. not so far away from where we are. It's not so far away. We, we, we can do it. And so we've hired some of the organizers from the Bernie Sanders campaign and from other campaigns. <laughs> They're just brilliant. 
And so we have 17,000 people have signed up to do to do fire drill Fridays where they live. And so we're continuing this with a new form of organizing. It's big organizing. It's 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 um, distributed organizing, it's called. And these these kids are so talented. We have people actually working, doing research for us that are going to is going to make the difference, I think when this is over in terms of how the election goes and that no matter what happens in the election, we're going to have the power to pressure for the things that, that are needed, like stopping fossil fuels and taking care of those workers. So they, they have good jobs afterwards, things like that. Exactly. Just transition. It is very mm. exciting, but, but you've actually taken the drum roll out of my last surprise question, Jane. <laughs> So the drum roll question is, what do we do if Trump is reelected? <laughs> we try not to think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard not to, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that we have to do with that in mind between now and November is put a lot of energy into states and cities. Right. Yes. Who the governors are, who the state legislatures are, who the the sheriffs are and the district attorneys and all of those positions are going to be critical. I mean, already we, we see there are, there are states and cities in the United States that are putting a Green New Deal into place with unions and workers um, and communities and environmentalists at the table, and it's working. It's always better to have the support of the federal government and uh, the money that they're pushing out now to bring things to scale. But we can go a long way with governors and state legislatures and local communities. And, Indeed. Um, and so that's something that we have to focus on. And then we have to, I think that we're going to, you know, gain seats in the, in the Senate and um, we're, we're going to, I mean, there's so many, there's not just plan B. What if, he doesn't win, but he refuses to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, now there's a scenario. <laughs> but, you know, when I was in D.C. and I was asked to speak to the Senate subcommittee on climate change, I asked them if they thought I was doing the right thing by organizing Fire Drill Fridays. And Senator Ed Markey said, yeah, you're building an army. Make it big. That's what we need. Exactly. And so that, that's what we want to do. We have to be able to shut down the government if necessary to make things happen. Absolutely. So that's what we're trying to do. Put into place the army that's needed. And even if the good guy wins, we have enough, you know, <laughs> Obama, everybody was so excited that a community organizer was actually going to become president. And the campaign that he built and the movement he built was so great. And then he got elected and it was like, Oh, that's great. It became a movie. Mm. Well, let's see what he does next. Let's see what he's mm. going to do now. We can never let that happen again. We have to make sure that even if it's a pro-climate, well, it'll be Biden or Trump. Let's just say it's Biden. We have to make sure that his feet are held to the fire. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, in the context of all of this, Jane, have to ask you, are you outraged or are you optimistic about what we have done and about what we still have to do? Well, I'm outraged. 
I'm outraged and heartbroken that people who have absolutely no empathy, no, no concern for the most vulnerable of us, but I'm very optimistic because I see people changing all the time and being willing to do things that they never thought they could do before. And that makes me optimistic. It's, um, I know the things that there's all, any kind number of things can happen that aren't so good, but I think that people are going to rise to the occasion in a way that we haven't seen in this country mm. even more than in the thirties around the new deal. Mm. I, I I feel optimistic and I hope I live long enough to see it take, take, take place. Inshallah on that one. <laughs> Jane, uh, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us today on Outrage and Optimism. Um, but above all, thank you for those uh, fiery, red, sm smacking red uh, fire drill Fridays that everyone is so much enjoying. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. I'm, I'm, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast with all of you. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. So and I'll see you in June. Uh, thank you, Jane. Yes, I will. That's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Well, what a privilege to get a chance to sit down with Jane Fonda. What an amazing experience that was to hear about her life and her activism and how passionate and how long she's been at this. What did you guys leave that conversation with? I think she is one of the most eloquent guests we have ever had. Uh, and I, I think that she's because she spent a, just a very long time thinking about her work, her life, her activism and how they integrate. And it comes out in just an incredible clarity of thought. Uh, I mean, she, you know, she, she thinks a bit before she talks and then she says essentially... Um, almost pure wisdom in my estimation. So that's my first impression. I was taken by um, her opening a new cognitive window for me hmm. with respect to activism. I've always thought of activism as something that we do out of our head because we have identified a cause or slash and our heart is involved and we are passionate. So the, the head and heart connection in activism have always been front and center for me and very present. The new piece that she brought in this conversation is the body. And she spoke quite eloquently about the alignment between her body, and her activism. Mm. And that is why she has trained to be um, incarcerated because those are the moments in which her alignment between where her body is and the conditions under which her body is are at the highest alignment with the values and principles that she believes in. And so embodied activism is completely new concept for me. And I'm so grateful to her for having explained that. Clearly it's not a new concept for her. She, she has um, been acting out of that strength for decades, mm. but it was not something, I mean, we have all heard about her 
um, getting arrested and uh, and going to jail. But the the internal experience of that and what I would call embodied activism or what she calls the alignment between her body and her values and principles, I thought was very moving and very instructive. Mm. I think, um, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. You picked up on that, Christiana and Paul, and I, I would echo that as well. I think one of the things that really struck me is, you know, after a while of doing the kind of work that we all do, you get very attuned to how complex many people's motivation is in doing this kind of work, right? We're all such kind of complex creatures. We're motivated by so many different things. I felt that she was one of the most, you know, directly motivated by an outcome people that I've come across. If you think about the years of her work, the way in which she's engaged in these different issues, the amazing story that she gave of the insight that she didn't want to be the rich woman living at the top of the hill mm. doing fundraisers for the people at the bottom of the hill. She wanted to be down there living with those people and how that sustained her. I thought her her stories about sustaining her energy over decades to continue these sorts of struggles were really instructive. And just that sense that she is so motivated by the thing itself, so motivated by what she tries to achieve. She's not motivated by by fame or by money or by those extrinsic extrinsic sort of vanity metrics, we can call them, that, that can be so um, encumbering for people. She just really wants to change the world. And I think that that was really interesting. To be honest, even though I've known about the Far Draw Fridays, I didn't know that about her until this conversation, that she has that amazing quality. I was really struck by it. But I mean, you know, she's she's humble and she says, you know, it was Greta Thunberg that got me off my ass and moved to Washington. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's really nice when, uh, you know, pe- people sort of say, well, what's the what's the power of Greta? Well, it's the power to get Jane Fonda off yeah. her ass, in her own words, to move to, 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 uh, to, to Washington, D.C. Uh, but I also thought um, she talked about, and I mean, with you know, but she's, she's a bit older, so she's got this ability to talk about how change takes a long time and being in it for the long haul and learning from the people. Uh, you know, when she said she didn't want to be on the top of the of the hill doing the fundraisers, she wanted to be standing with the people that she wanted to learn from and work with. Mm. And, and ultimately, you know, when, when I asked her about celebrity, her talking about the role of celebrity to give others a voice. And I love that story of Joachim Phoenix and others not speaking at the event, but inviting uh, the the experts to speak. I found that to be a, a very um, kind of exciting use of her, her celebrity and very innovative and very appropriate. Because, you know, we often find, you know, we've all worked in, in non-governmental organizations I have for, for 20 years. It can actually be very difficult to find celebrities who are willing to participate in the in the slightly less glamorous side of things, actually, but 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 sort of stand with the activists. But but um that 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 point that was made early in her career uh, by someone, we don't need more activists, we don't need more organizers, we need more celebrities. I thought that was super fascinating. Mm-hmm. That, that to to recognize that actually there's a there's a fusion uh, at best between activists, organizers, and and the and the famous uh, people who who speak to our society and speak for it in some regards. She used a very interesting term to describe that. Um, she used, she borrowed from uh, the ICT industry and she said, uh, I'm a repeater, mm. which is, you know, that, that tower that is built at the top of the hill. 
in order to pick up weak signals and amplify them beyond the next horizon. And I thought that was actually quite interesting because on the one hand, she said, I don't want to live at the top of the hill. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, 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 yeah. And, 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 and that's, you know, a, a very honest, sincere feeling. But then she recognized that her friend told her, frankly, there are enough people down at the bottom of the hill. Um, there are enough activists. And what we don't have is people at the top of the hill. And then she describes herself, her role as being at the top of the hill, being a repeater. And, um, and I think that is a very fascinating transformation of the understanding of your own role hmm. where she then eventually decides actually she will stay at the top of the role uh, at the top of the hill because that's where she can do most good she doesn't stay there because she's a famous actress or because she can make a lot of money she stays there because that's where she can have most influence and most impact yeah. Mm. Um, so I think that's fascinating to go from, I don't want to live at the top of the hill to being told, actually, your role is to stay at the top of the hill. Um, and then understand your role in society as being absolutely permanently planted there at the top of the hill. There is a very important role to be played by those that are at the top of the hill. And that's, Peters. But, but, taking, but taking instructions from the bottom of the hill. Sorry, Tom. No, that's okay. I mean, I was just going to say, that's what you do if you're motivated by the outcome. You know, you do yes, what's needed exactly. in any situation to achieve the change that you want. And you're 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 not you know you're not necessarily sort of saying I will only play this role or I'm the kind of person that has to fit in this way. You do what is most needed at any particular time to deliver yeah. the outcomes. Very you do inspiring. what you you play your part where you can have the most impact. Yeah, and I just thought that was so beautifully, yeah, as as Paul said, so eloquently put forward. Yeah. But do you take my point about if she was at the top of the hill raising money for kind of causes she thought were important, that's a totally different dynamic to being uh, standing with the activists and the people who are the experts in, in the injustice, should we say, whatever that may be, at the bottom of the hill, um, being with them, understanding them, and going up to the top of the hill and being the repeater. I think that's what's so unique about her. Hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And we should we should talk about this another time. I mean, it, it to me, one of the real problems we have in climate change at the moment is this gulf between philanthropy and actually taking action. And you're right, Paul, what she's done is she's kind of knitted the two together. That would actually be a good issue for us to unpick in some detail on a future podcast, because sadly today we are out of time. So um, this has been a great conversation. Um, I hope you've enjoyed joining us this week for this very special discussion with Jane Fonda. We've certainly enjoyed the discussion and we really appreciate you tuning in and listening. Um, we're now charging into our second year of broadcasting. We had our celebration last week, continuing to move forward. We always so appreciate it when you join us. Please tell your friends, please leave us a rating and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Thank you again to everyone who's joining us from having heard about our podcast from Yuval Noah Harari. We are so glad to have you. 
We make this podcast every week, so hit subscribe and jump back in our catalog of episodes with incredible guests. I'm sure there's some names in there that you'll recognize. Enjoy. Oh, and if you're interested in joining our conversation online, you can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And you can email us at podcast at globaloptimism.com. We always read your feedback. So thank you for that. And now we thank the team. Thanks to Laura Richardson, Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Sharon Johnson, Jonathan Kumi, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. A special thank you this week to Debbie Karaluski, Shaili Ball, Tessa Wick, and Kimberly Christman for making the interview with Jane happen. And of course, thank you to Jane Fonda. Such an honor to spend time with you. I actually have Grace and Frankie queued up on Netflix to watch as soon as I publish this episode, so I'm going to get to that. Okay, without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia Herman. If you check the show notes, I've put a link there to the World Health Organization's guidelines on how to protect yourself and loved ones from COVID-19. Please click the link, educate yourself, and educate others. Thank you. Okay, next week, another episode. We'll be right here. See you then.